Hello, everybody. Welcome to our new episode of this new second season of Purposely Local. This is a podcast where we actually feature the why and the purpose of characters, business, and people around the world of local. So these are just people that I randomly choose and met, and I found it that they have really interesting stories. And today I have the pleasure to be right next to Dr. Shamil. Dr. Shamil and I met via Lunch Club, right? Uh, and correct. And I was really in shock and surprised by Dr. Shamil's story, the purpose, his views on the beauty industry, the product that he is building now that is, I think is amazing and deserves a lot of credit. And I found it really interesting to, to bring here to this podcast. And that's why we're here today. Welcome, Dr. Shamil. Thank you so much, Daniel, for giving me this opportunity. <laughs> Lovely to be here. And so, yes, I'm here to talk about my story, what I do and why I do it. And I would love to share more. So ask away. <laughs> awesome. Great. Awesome, Dr. Shamil. So my first question to you is, let's talk about your childhood. Where did you grow up? What was your motivation in your early days? Things that you remember that you really were passionate about it when you were growing up? So I'm from uh, Britain and lived in London all my life, uh, grew up there. And, and I come from a family of science uh, background people. My father was an engineer. My older brother was an engineer, but he's an engineer. My older sister went into science and so on. But as a children, we were all in awe of our father, who was a, a, an aircraft engineer and worked for British Airways. And so we were very much influenced by his work in the field of science and engineering. And as a child, I always wanted to be a medical doctor. I wanted to help people with their bodies and so on. And I think it stems from when I was four years old, I think I had an ear infection and the local GP came over to, to see me. And I was like, I want to be this guy who's going to people's homes to fix people, as it were. I want to be the fixer of the body. And so throughout my school life, I always thought I would go into medicine. But then as I grew older and I was like 15, 16, I became a little obsessive compulsive. And I realized that I actually did not want to touch people's dirty bodies. I did not want to touch their feet or I didn't want to, and I didn't like body smell. And I didn't want to be close to people. But I was still infatuated by, intrigued by the human body. And so I decided that I would go into science without really realizing what this venture into science would be. But I just thought I wanted to know more about the human body. And so I did, I went in and got a degree in biochemistry, biomedical science. To understand, I was always good at chemistry, but I was also intrigued by the human body. So it was interesting to see how chemistry can be applied to the human body. And at the end of the day, everything in our body happens through a chemical reaction. And so I studied biochemistry. And then after getting my bachelor's degree, I did really well at college. I got a first class honors degree. And I still didn't know what I was going to do with this degree. And I saw an advertisement in a, online, in a journal for, for a PhD program to study the sensory perception of sugars and artificial sweetness. And I thought, oh, this sounds really interesting because it's perception, which means it's still related to the human body and it's food related because it's sugars. And so I applied 
for that PhD program. And the supervisor, the PhD professor loved me. He offered me the opportunity. So I got into it completely by default, not realizing that this going into this world of sugar perception could lead to a more broader regions and more broader area of perception of taste, smell, visual perception, and so on. And how this kind of entry into the world of perception could give me opportunities to work in the food industry, the fragrance industry, the beauty industry, the lifestyle industry, that I have now, my story has taken me. And so that's how the journey began. And what happened at that time when you realized that that's what you wanted to do? What did you do first? What was the first step? So I got my PhD, still not really 100% knowing where this was going to go. So I'm working on understanding the mechanism of perception of sugars and how artificial sweeteners behave in the mouth and the perception that we get and trying to understand the differences. And that was my PhD thesis, was understanding the mechanism of perception of sweet taste. And then after that, I came across Pepsi-Cola family. And they found me in England, and they were intrigued by my background, that it was in sweeteners. And Pepsi-Cola, of course, has a big interest in artificial sweeteners and Diet Pepsi and so on. And Diet Pepsi is a great tasting product, but there are many people who don't like the taste of artificial sweeteners. And they want Pepsi to taste more like a regular tasting product. And, and some people are very sensitive to the taste of artificial sweeteners. So Pepsi wanted somebody with a background in sensory perception of sweet taste and somebody who had a knowledge of uh, sensory analysis, which is basically measurement of perception. Because taste perception happens in the brain. You receive the signals in your mouth, but you, the perception happens in the brain. But there's no instrument that you can measure that taste of you know, sweet taste perception or any kind of sweet taste, or any kind of taste. You have to work with a panel of people and you train them to become like instruments. And there are the whole world of sensory analysis, which is measurement of perception, is very advanced now. And it borrows techniques from experimental psychology in how you measure perception. So anyway, I got into Pepsi-Cola. They hired me and they brought me over because they liked the fact that I had this knowledge of sensory analysis and I had a background in artificial sweetness and sweet taste and so on. And they wanted me to come over and lead a program on making low-calorie beverages taste more like regular. So initially, the focus was on diet Pepsi, but then uh, my work spanned across all low-calorie beverages, such as juices, teas, coffees, other kinds of sodas like Mountain Dew, 7-Up, Miranda, and other you know, carbonated soft drinks and so on. And I did that for a few years, but then I realized that food, I like cooking food, I like flavors and so on, but it's not really my true passion. My passion is, I'm also a creative guy. And in the food industry, everything is very analytical. It is very true to reality. Whereas the beauty and fragrance world is very much abstract. It's much more creative. And basically anything is possible. And whereas in the food world, if I say to you, apple, you have certain ideas of what an apple tastes like because you've right. an apple. But if I say to you, the smell of some breezy, windy area of some part of the world, and I create a great story about it, it you may not, not never have been there. So it becomes a fantasy. So it's much more possible and it's more abstract. And one's perception of a windy, breezy, 
BT area might be very different from someone else's. The landscape is much bigger to work with. With, with food, it's much more confined and much more literal because people have had experiences of food because we all eat foods all throughout our lives and we have very direct and distinct sort of associations with food based on what we ate growing up and so on. So food was not something I was necessarily that intrigued by or interested by because I found it very stifling. And so I left Pepsi-Cola to work for a flavor company. How many years were you in Pepsi-Cola? I was there for a few years, not that long. Okay. I left Pepsi because I wanted to get into the fragrance and beauty world. But mm -hmm. I knew I couldn't go there working on pop soda to going into the luxury world. It just doesn't happen. I was strategic. I went to a company that worked. So most companies that provide beverage companies with favors, their sister division also provides fragrances for the beauty world and the fragrance world. So there are companies called Flavor and Fragrance Houses. And these are basically suppliers of chemicals or products to either the food or beverage world or a consumer goods company like Procter Gamble, where they're working on household goods or, or personal care products like skincare, hair care, body shampoos and body lotion and things like that. And then they also provide fragrances for what you wear on your skin, which is purely for art, fine fragrances. So I left Pepsi to work for Ferminish, which is a, one of the world's biggest flavor fragrance company. And I was hired to manage flavor technology for the beverage world, for their beverage business. And I went there with only one purpose in mind, and that is that was to go into the fragrance part of their business. So I went to Ferminish, worked on the flavors for a few years, proved my, and then at the same time, I built associations with the fragrance group so they could see the value I could bring to the fine fragrance side. And then I jumped over to the fine fragrance group. And in so doing, I also moved away from pure science R&D, more into marketing and business development, but still using the knowledge of science to help create new fragrances. So I'm not a perfumer. I can't create perfumes, but I work with perfumers to provide them with inspiration so that they can dream and imagine and create beautiful scents. I would provide inspirations based on new trends in gastronomy, new trends in fashion, new trends in new knowledge of the human mind, and so on. So these types of ideas and input can help the perfumer, who is the artist creating a perfume, to think beyond their own knowledge of the palette of chemicals that they use. But in so doing, they can create more beautiful fragrances that are truly evocative and truly compelling and resonate with the consumer's mind much more animalistically and much more instinctually and emotionally because fragrances are very personal. And what we like, what we wear, has a lot to do with who we are and our experiences in childhood. Correct. relationship with our mother. Let's talk a little bit about that. I know you have a very specific view of what beauty means to you and what is really, what actually one of the biggest things that strikes me about you is when you told me your thoughts about what beauty means. Sure. I so, think so. beauty is really under, under, under value in terms of what it is today. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, you have a very good line of thoughts about what beauty is. Sure. So let me thank you for asking me this question, Daniel. Let me first start by talking about the importance of beauty and what is beauty. So first, 
Let me just clarify what is not beauty. <clears throat> beauty is not about lipstick, makeup, mascara. Lipstick and beauty is not about Botox and fillers. Beauty is really about, it's, a, it's an expression of your outer beauty and inner beauty. It's a construct in the minds of other people. So none of us grows up believing that we are innately beautiful or not beautiful. Whatever we believe is what we have been told by other people, because beauty is very much a construct of other people's perceptions of us. Now, you can't change people's perceptions, but you can influence their perceptions. And so what is perception? Perception is basically the internal reality of the outside world. And so it's the mental impression of a physical expression. So we are all empowered to influence other people's perception to come across as being as beautiful as possible. But before I talk about the beauty, let me just talk a little bit about the origin of beauty and why beauty is important. Babies are considered to be cute and beautiful. And that is nature's way of saying, I'm trustworthy, I'm harmless, don't hurt me. And because babies are cute, they're rounded, they look adorable. And that is a way to, and that's why we then therefore associate beauty with innocence. We associate beauty with trustworthiness and everybody wants beauty. And so as we get older, we still continue to keep that association in mind where beauty equals innocence and trustworthiness and so on. And that's why research has shown that beautiful people often get better paid jobs, they get better bank loans, they are more likely to get elected to political office, they're more likely to get promoted, they're more likely to get jobs, they're more likely to get married, they're more likely to be let off by a jury, they're less likely to be convicted of a crime because we associate this mental association of beauty being with innocence. And that's why, you know, this is reinforced by Hollywood. Have you ever seen a villain that's beautiful? No, a villain is always this ugly guy and the hero is the beautiful guy. And the same is true in Disney. You look at Cinderella. Cinderella is this beautiful, innocent girl, but her mother, her stepmother is ugly and her two stepsisters are also not good looking and they are unattractive people because they, that's, it's reinforced that unattractive or people who are ugly are mean, whereas beautiful people are trustworthy and moralistic. Now, there's no scientific evidence to suggest that it's true, by the way, that you're beautiful, you're moralistic. But unfortunately, so beauty has its advantages. So I believe, my personal belief on beauty is that we are all beautiful because I believe in the theory of one, which is my take on life. And that is that while God did not create us equally in every way, God did create us equally in our totality, where the sum of our individual attributes equal to a complete entity of one. So we all are one in our, complete, in our complete entity. So to me, we are all beautiful. So if we start off with that premise, I always say to people, go on a self-discovery of your beauty. So become aware of your beauty, learn to accept your beauty, and thirdly, come to appreciate your beauty. And if you cannot accept your beauty, and substitute that acceptance with take an action. You take an action so that you become more satisfied of your beauty so that you can learn to appreciate your beauty. Because beauty is not just your outside 
world. It's also your inner beauty. Your inner beauty is what other people perceive through when you speak. You hear and feel inner beauty but, and smell outer beauty. And the total beauty is a composite of the physical and emotional expressions that you give out to the world. So the inner beauty is your confidence, your self-esteem, your empathy, your intelligence. All of these things constitute internal beauty. So self-esteem is very important. So when you come to learn to become aware of your beauty and you accept it and you learn to appreciate it, whether you are 100% physically attractive or not, it doesn't matter. When your self-esteem goes up because you believe that you're beautiful, other people find you to be more beautiful. And research has shown that people can very accurately perceive your self-esteem, uh, even in the absence of any visual cues, other than just looking at you where you're not making any facial expressions, they can sense that you have self, high self-esteem and they will find you more attractive and they will find you more physically attractive. So it's interesting how your inner beauty can influence your outer beauty, regardless of what you were blessed with. But you can only have self-esteem if you come to become aware of your beauty, accept it, and appreciate it. Because look at it this way. If you don't find yourself attractive, then you have no right in, in, in expecting other people to find you attractive. So when you look in the mirror, you have to find yourself attractive. And being attracted to yourself and, be, and saying to yourself, oh, I look good, is not about vanity. It's actually about sanity. You must learn to appreciate because people can tell whether you are, have self-confidence or not. And self-confidence is then projected in, in how you hold yourself, how you carry yourself, your posture, and so on. So it's not all about running to, the, going to a makeup counter, and putting on half a pound of makeup, or getting plastic surgery done, and so on. If you're not feeling good inside, and you're not confident, people will not find you to be attractive. You've heard this expression, which is, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. That's true and not true. So let me explain. When it comes to physical beauty, just the outside beauty, there is remarkable agreement on what is physically beautiful, pretty much in, at least in the Western culture, in the Western world, which is for women, it's big eyes, small nose, pouty lips, a smaller waistline. For men, it's a square jawline, deep set eyes, and, and broad shoulders. And this is the physical attribute. However, we all know that we all find different people attractive. And that's because we never assess people just based on their physicality. We talk to people, we hear what they say, we listen to them, and we smell beauty as well. What type of fragrance do you wear? It also influences other people's perception of you. The end, so my, the message that I have is that you can influence other people's perception of your beauty not just by focusing on your physical attributes, but also on your self-confidence, on your posture, on your self-esteem. And, of course, there are things you can do to your physical attributes, how you look after, looking after your skin, your teeth, your body, your hair. So, for me, beauty becomes, it's basically a tool of empowerment to influence other people's perceptions so that you elicit a mental impression of a law 
in the minds of others and through a holistic approach that's grounded in health and well-being. So my message is health is the investment and beauty is simply the return. You cannot be beautiful unless you're healthy. You can be healthy and not be beautiful, but you cannot be beautiful unless you're healthy. And health, health begins with the mouth. You cannot be healthy unless you have a healthy mouth. So beauty, therefore, become, begins with the mouth. So let me repeat. You cannot be beautiful unless you're healthy. You cannot be healthy unless you have a healthy mouth. Therefore, beauty begins with the mouth. The oral health is very important. And to me, oral health is all about health and beauty. When you have beautiful straight white teeth, they're actually healthy teeth. And when you have beautiful straight white teeth, you tend to smile more. And when you smile, you automatically become more beautiful in the minds of other people. When you smile, you increase your immune system. You produce more white blood cells. When you smile, you release endorphins that lower your pain. You release more dopamine, serotonin. And so you feel good. And when, we, when you smile, other people will smile with you. So sometimes your smile can become the source of other people's joy. And when you... Right, smile, contagious, basically. Yeah. Absolutely contagious. Yeah. You've hit the nail on the head. Right. Smiling is contagious. And, and so smiling can really add to your beauty. But a lot of the times people don't smile. It's because they're conscious of their teeth. But at the same time, they won't do anything about it. So teeth is really important. And, and, and by dental care, you really need to have a good regimen. And that is brushing your teeth after every meal. Brushing your teeth two times a day is not sufficient. You really need to do it every, after every meal because the bacteria builds up in your mouth exponentially and it multiplies every 20 minutes. So you end up with a ton of bacteria in the mouth. And Oral health, if your oral health is not good, that will lead to a whole host of systemic health issues, like high blood pressure, diabetes, osteoporosis. If you're a woman, you're less likely to carry your baby to full term. You could have premature babies. Or if you're trying to get pregnant, it could affect your fertility. So there's a whole host of systemic health issues that come from not looking after your teeth. And by teeth, it's not just the teeth, it's the gums as well, which is all the, the whole thing. So brushing your teeth, flossing your teeth, just by flossing your teeth, you can increase your life expectancy by two or three years by some measure, which is really a very minimal effort that you're doing and taking out the food that gets trapped between your teeth that can then ferment and the food then gets turned into, into acid which can then cause gingivitis and so on and so forth. Yeah. This is such a refreshing approach to what you're saying about beauty in general. And one thing I'm actually noticing now that I'm listening to you is that you say that when you were on the soda world and the soda industry doing things that they were a little more scientific. And now you feel like in the beauty world, you're a little more creative. But I see that you have both approach oh, in absolutely. your yes, entire yes. life today. It's, it's kind of like a balance uh, yes, because I absolutely. see, I, I never hear, or I, at least in my experience, I never experienced someone talking about beauty in, with such a, with all these arguments that you're putting together and all these scientific backup on everything that you're saying that it makes it more believable of what you're, what you're trying to say. So 
that was going to be my next question is how do you balance between both? Like how do you balance in your craft making beauty products? And we'll touch into that later, but in your craft of making beauty products, how do you balance both sides? So I believe everything begins with science. Every approach must begin with the knowledge of the human body and and, and the mind. And, And also understanding people's needs. And so it's a balance between science and consumer knowledge and consumer insights. What is it that people want? Or what is it that people, what are their unaddressed, unspoken, unconscious needs? And then how can we deliver them with the knowledge of the human body, with the knowledge of science, with the knowledge of the, the mind, the body, and so on? So it becomes a unique approach of marrying science with art. And there are not many people who have that innate ability to mix science with art. And I'm not the purest scientist as such. I'm more of an applied scientist because I like to think of myself as as a scientist with an artistic flair who likes to apply science to unravel a mystery. So I believe it's all about scientists Our job is to unravel mystery. As an artist, our job is to deepen the mystery. And as a marketing person, our job is to capitalize on the mystery and make it make money from it. And mystery is the essence of life. Mystery is what makes people, it engages people, it makes them think about, it excites people. So mystery is really important. But And so because I'm a scientist, I can unravel the mystery. As an artist, I like to add mystery. And then as a marketing person, I like to commercialize the mystery. And so it's a balance of all these three different things. So, and that's what I love about the beauty world is that I'm able to marry the art with the science. And that was a little difficult in the food world. But science is never away from me. So I'm not in the lab creating new molecules or anything like that. But I am constantly creating conceptual models on how to explain certain phenomena based on my either my gut feel, gut conviction, and then I look for scientific evidence to support my convictions and then creating products or ideas or concepts around that. That's very interesting. One thing that actually I remember you and I talking when we first met is a difference between what beauty means for men and what beauty means for women. Here and I, two men talking about beauty, which is really unusual. So I kind of want to hear from you, what are those differences, if there are differences? So I would say there are no real differences in beauty. Of course, a beautiful man looks different from a beautiful woman, as I mentioned earlier. For a man, it's more about deep set eyes and the square jawline. Whereas on a woman, a softer jawline is nicer and bigger eyes. But in terms of perception of beauty and how we relate to beauty and how it makes us feel, it's pretty much the same. And these days, beauty is not about vanity. It's really about health. And I find that guys are just as worried or just as concerned about wanting to look good wanting to feel good. And I don't think there's any, I think there's, um, it's still, there's a long way to go, but it is converging and coming closer in the level of importance of beauty for both men and women. 
I think women today, they still tend to focus on color cosmetics as their go-to beauty product. And men on the whole might still shy away from beauty because they confuse it with vanity. That is slightly the older generation, but the younger guys born after 95, the generation Z, or Z as you say in America, they tend to be a little bit more, they are more inclusive. They are, they are more confident. They are more about wanting to look good and feel good and be healthy and be in good shape. So I would say the whole definition and appreciation of beauty between men and women is converging. It's coming closer. And men are interested in reading health articles to improve their body. And guys focus on their body. But body is beauty. It's not just beauty. It's not just your face or your hair. So guys spend a lot of time at the gym. Why? It's because it's not all just about wanting to be healthy. It's because they want to look good. They want to have that amazing six pack or they want to have that great body. And in the, in the 90s, there was this world called a metrosexual where the guy wanted to look good based on his style, what clothes he was wearing. The new term is now spornosexual. And a spornosexual is a man who wants to be wanted for his physique. So if you are a good looking guy with an amazing body, the last thing you want to do is to be photographed on Instagram with a ton of clothes on. They want to be, they want the world to see them with their physique, with their body. And so that is beauty. And so beauty comes in all forms of words and shapes. And since I talked about color cosmetics, let me just say one thing. Makeup, color cosmetics should only be an option for a woman. It should never be a necessity. A woman should never feel the need to wear color cosmetics to hide a blemish, it to conceal something. Because makeup on the whole can make a woman look prettier, but it never makes her look. Because we associate makeup with an older person. And so when you are an 18-year-old girl and you want to get into a nightclub, what do you do? You put on half a pound of makeup and immediately you look 23, 24. And so they can maybe attract an older guy who might not be interested in school, but they might be attracted in somebody who looks a few years older. That's fine when you're 18. But if you're 25, you don't want to look 30. When you're 30, you don't want to look 35. But we mentally associate makeup with an older person. And so more and more, as you get older, especially women over 30, they look so much better with beautiful, flawless skin. And sometimes they will wear color cosmetic in place of working on their skin. And working on your skin does not necessarily mean putting on expensive skincare products. Your skin is the largest organ that covers your entire body. You don't wear a birth certificate on your forehead, but you do wear your skin. And skin is the key determinant of your perceived age, how other people think how old you are. So age should never be discussed. It should never be revealed. It should only be perceived. And so you can't hide your skin, nor can you hide from your skin. You have no choice but to invest in your skin. And so skin is your largest organ. It is what people see. It is what people then make judgments about you in terms of your age and so on. And skin visual perception of your skin also is a determinant of other people's perception of your character. We assess other people's character subconsciously through visual perception of their skin tone and their skin texture. So 
our skin is determined by our genetics to a to some degree, to a large degree. But whatever we can control, 70% of that, 60 to 70% of that is lifestyle choices. What you eat, how do you manage your stress, the exercise you do, do you stay away from the sun and do you wear sunglasses? Do you stay away from smoking and drugs and alcohol? So 60 to 70% are lifestyle choices that affect your skin. Only 30 to 40% would be the skincare regimen, what product you put on your face. So as a skincare guy, I would say to you, forget the products if you're not doing the basics. No expensive product will do you any good if you are not making the right lifestyle choices. Your, your gut, having a good digestive system is really important to your beauty. You wouldn't even think that. Yes, it is important because your gut is where the most of your immune system lies. And if you don't have a good functioning gut, your immune system will be bad and that will affect the dermal microbiome, the bacteria that's on your skin. That will then affect your dermal barrier. It will affect other people's perception of your skin, how your skin looks. Is it flawless? Is it now developing hyperpigmentation? Is it now getting fine lines and wrinkles? And so on. So having your digestive system working and having a good diet that prevents a leaky gut that has your system is working properly has a direct influence on your skin and beauty and how other people perceive you. That's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. Thank you for sharing all this. And I think, you know, as I said, it's such a refreshing approach, uh, the way that you see beauty. That said, I see like the needs of creating so many new products and things that, that, you know, that they can reinforce what you're thinking about beauty and the thoughts that you're putting together about beauty. So my question to you is in your craft, like how do you now, because I know this answer, but I cannot, you wanted to share it with everyone. You know, you have this super revealing and strong version and strong concept of beauty. So how do you materialize that in your own products? How are you creating and putting that vision into sure. action. So I'm I'm creating a product called Chamille. It's an eponymous brand. It's a line of it's a dermocosmetic brand of specialty primers, which basically prime the skin so that disguise the blemishes instantly without there being any color cosmetic. Remember, it's the color cosmetics give you visual perception of, of aging. So we don't want and they also look unnatural. So I've created a brand called Dr. Shamila Primer, Specialty Primers, which is in layman's term, it's basically invisible makeup. But in makeup, the problem with makeup is that it, uh, there's no long-term healing. When you wash your face, the effect is gone. So makeup has several problems. One problem is that it's artificial. People can see you've got it on. Second problem is that men don't want to wear it. Third problem is it actually makes the woman look older. Fourth problem with makeup is that there's no long-term effect. Once you wash your face, everything is gone. So I wanted to get to solve all these problems by creating a dermocosmetic brand where the products work instantly without there being any visual perception of any makeup, no color cosmetic, and there being long-term healing. And so that is so that encompasses so what I advocate in line with advocating a message on the lifestyle choices you make. Because it's really important that whatever product you, you make, it comes with this bigger message that you must 
eat nice, sleep. Sleeping is really important. If you're not sleeping well, you're not doing yourself any justice. So sleeping is a very important component of beauty and, and, and so on. My, my products are in line with my convictions and my message that I advocate on my blog. So the products are basically a physical rendition of me, my science, and my beliefs. So the products have been designed through the prism of other people. If you remember, I said your beauty is a construct of other people's perceptions. So it's important that other people find that your skin is looking good so that they tell you that you look good. And we, as humans, we are uh, creatures who need affirmation. We need other people to tell us we look good. And when other people tell us we look good, our confidence and our self-appreciation goes up even more. So it's important to create products that give you that immediate feedback and that gives you the incentive to, to, to use the products more regularly. And then as you use the product more regularly, there are other ingredients in the product that are working over time that give you the skincare effect. So you get more long-term. Remember, we live in a world of impatience more and more. We want everything instant. We want, we want it now. We don't want to wait four weeks. Skincare takes four to six weeks. And men are renowned for being impatient. And women are more and more becoming impatient. Women tend to be a little bit more brand loyal, but they also want results immediately. So I created a brand. Remember, you asked me what's the difference between man and women's beauty? And I said there was very little. So I've created a brand that is gender non-specific because I believe skin is skin. It's neither a man's skin. Or it's a, we all have the same need. You don't design a chair for a man or design a chair for a woman. You just design a chair. A man can sit on it. It becomes a man's chair and a woman sits on it. It's a woman's chair. So the same is true with skincare. If a man wears it, it's a man's skincare. If a woman wears it, it's a woman's skincare. Skin is skin. It's not that different. Yes, people will say a man's skin is slightly thicker than a woman's skin, but it's in the big scheme of things, they don't really need different products. I've created a very simple line of products that meet the needs. So I believe skin is your biggest organ, so you must look after it by all the lifestyle choices you make. And then you should have a daily skincare regimen, which includes five steps, cleansing your skin, you clean your skin, get rid of your dirt, grime, and so on twice a day. And getting rid of the pollutants, which can cause inflammation and so on. And in fact, pollutants are the biggest source of skin aging. So I know we all think sun is the worst culprit, but pollutants are equally just as bad. By pollutants and oxide, carbon monoxide, um, and, and you've got ground level ozone, and then you've got other things like heavy metals. Some of the foods that you eat can have things like mercury that can cause inflammation and so on. So pollutants are t terrible. And especially when you sleep on your bed or on your pillow, the pillow is filled with dust mites. And it, no matter what detergent you use, the dust mites, you're not going to get rid of them all you know, completely. And so waking up in the morning is really important to wash your face because of all the dust mites that have been on your face. And they can cause havoc, causing inflammation, re reducing your dermal barrier. The dermal barrier is basically what prevents the loss of water. And the skin can only do its job of protection while it is well hydrated. Actually, while I'm talking about hydration, let me just talk a little bit about drinking water. It is important to drink water. 
But drinking more water, excessive amount of water, is not going to give you good skin. That's complete nonsense. So when people talk about, oh, I'm drinking a ton of water to help with the detoxification, or I'm drinking water to give me good skin, you don't, you're not going to get good skin by drinking a ton of water. Yes, you have to be hydrated to a certain extent. And if you're not hydrated, you will feel thirsty. And that's your body telling you you need to drink water. But you don't need to drink gallons of water. What you do need is to put on a moisturizer to strengthen your dermal barrier so that you don't lose the water. Drinking water for your skin is about, is about as an analogy. It's about the same as saying, I'm thirsty. Let me go and take a dip in the pool. Taking a dip in the pool is not going to quench your thirst. That's the same with your dry skin. If you have dry skin, drinking water is not going to do you any good. So that's just something I wanted to say because I know in America, everybody is crazy about drinking ton of water. And, and celebrities will say, oh, I have beautiful skin because I drink two gallons of water. But they won't tell you. They may be doing Botox and doing lots of other stuff that might have your skin attributed to water. And then everybody else is now drinking water uh, incessantly. So... Cleaning your skin is really important. And then exfoliating your skin a few times a week. What is exfoliation? Exfoliation is getting rid of your dead outermost layer of your skin. So your outermost layer of your skin is full of dead cells. And as we're young, when we're younger, we go through cell renewal where the cells, the dead cells basically slough off and they flake off and you have more radiant skin coming through. As we get older, this process slows down, so it needs a helping hand. So a couple of times a week, it's good to exfoliate your skin so that newer skin comes through. And then the third thing you do is to hydrate your skin, which is moisturizing. And then you protect your skin from the sun by using a sun SPF. And then at nighttime, you must use some, some kind of first wash your face and then use a night cream. And the night cream is to help repair the skin. Your skin is in two modes. It's either in the protection mode, which is during the day, where it's protecting you. And at nighttime, it's in the repair mode. So during the day, it's really important that you protect your skin so that the skin can protect you. And at nighttime, you use products that are full of nutrients and you go to sleep and you rest so that the skin can repair. The skin repairs itself at nighttime when hormones like melatonin is high and, and human growth hormone, which help to repair the skin. And at nighttime, the skin is more permeable. So vitamins and minerals can go through the skin. And that's the time to use a nourishing cream that's rich in vitamin A, retinoid, and so on. And so that when you wake up, wow. it is bright. So many, so much information, so much information that you are sharing now. And I think that there's a lot to learn from everything that you are saying. So my, my, this is a question that I always ask towards the end of the podcast, and I kind of wanted to understand what is your ultimate goal? What do you want? What do you want to change with your products today and with your vision of beauty? What do you ultimately want to happen in the next 10, 20, 30, whatever years you think that you need to sure. take, that it, that it takes for you to make that change? I would like my brand, Dr. Schmiel, to promote younging. Younging is a term coined to help promote looking, feeling, living young as you get older for as long as you live. So that the chronological age becomes absolutely, completely redundant. What's important is how you look. 
and how you feel. And I just want my mission, my, if I have one mission in, in this life, and that is to make chronological age completely redundant. And I want to make that redundant through advocacy lifestyle, what, how to keep your stress down and eating, sleeping, exercising, and all of that. And then using products strategically, smartly, inexpensive products that can help promote well-being, which is the balance between physical health, mental health, looking beautiful, respecting fellow citizens and the environment, and promoting the journey of younging. Instead of aging, we should be younging, which is looking, feeling, living young as you get older for as long as you live. And if I can accomplish that, then I will have achieved my goal. Wow, what a perfect ending. This is like the end of the movie when the credits start happening, start going up after this. Thank you very much, Dr. Shamil, for sharing all this. I think there's so much information and content that, that you are sharing with us today. And I think there's, as I continue to say during the podcast, it's such a refreshing of what beauty is, what important your health is. I really like And I hope we'll really see that change that you're putting together. Is there Thank any- you so much, Daniel. I enjoyed being with you. Thank you for the opportunity. It's nice to get my message out. And I believe I'm really appreciative of you giving me this platform. And yes, my message on beauty is different, but I believe it's going to take time for people to believe in what I'm saying and shift towards it. I think people are shifting towards this more holistic approach to beauty and uh, and I hope we will chat again for sure I will hope to have you in every season to continuously see your advances and development I think that you're clearly the the type of person that I want to be having conversations in this podcast you you clearly have a purpose and you have your purpose really specifically put in the product that you're putting together and you have a very interesting vision to thank you, to accomplish thank you. Now. but I'd love to talk to you in the future about other areas like how to spend your money wisely how to dress how to save money and happiness we didn't really touch on happiness and emotional well-being and so on and so there are lots of other things that we can talk about in future episodes if you would want to talk to me yeah. absolutely we'll definitely have you come back thank you very much dr shamil thank you thank you everyone for listening this is dr shamil and this is another episode of purposely local thank you very much for listening <laughs>